I want you to imagine that you are in one of the world's most influential cities, and you are standing before an audience of the top movers and shakers in that city, politicians, celebrities, intellectuals, you name it. And they know nothing of God, but they've asked you to tell them about him. What is the first thing that you would want to say to them about God? We've been looking at his character all summer, and we could look at it for the rest of eternity and not run out of things to say. But where would you start? Let's have some suggestions. What are some of the things that you would want to say right at the start about God to this group of amazingly influential people? Some shout out, some things about God you know. Jesus. About Jesus. Love. Love. Brilliant. Say that again. He made you. He made you. Yeah, holy. He's faithful. Just. He is just. Very good, yeah. Yeah, there's so many things that we could say. Well, in 50 AD, Paul found himself in exactly this situation. He was in the intellectual capital of the world, in Athens, and he had been invited to go to the Areopagus, the political and intellectual heart of the city, to tell people who knew nothing of God all about him. And he'd been in Athens a short while, and he had noticed that for all the Athenians' intelligence and their devotion to untangling the mysteries of the universe, they still just didn't know what God was really like. And here's how he started. It's recorded for us in Acts 17. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. Before anything else, Paul wanted the Athenians to understand that God does not need anything. He has no needs outside of himself. God is self-sufficient. That's Paul's starting point. I don't know if that's a surprise to you, but that's what he went with first. This summer, we've been studying lots of different aspects of God, as I've already said, and who he is. And we're finishing that series today by looking at God being self-sufficient. In Athens, Paul observed a lot of frenetic activity of people trying to supply the needs of the gods. And this is his observation. You're doing all these things like God needed anything. He doesn't. God himself tells his people exactly that in Psalm 50. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, You're doing all the stuff, but you're missing the point. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. 
For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. He says to his people, you think your sacrifices and your service are for my benefit? You've got this all wrong. You can't provide for me. God has to continually remind his people of this throughout the Old Testament. And Paul picks up in many of his New Testament letters as well. In Romans 8, he writes, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has, been, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul is adamant that you have to abandon all your hopes of engaging in a relationship with God on a transactional basis. Transactions require both sides to bring something of worth to the table, right? I buy, you sell. You provide a service and I pay for that service. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But not with God. I wonder if you find yourself slipping into this kind of thinking. You have to work hard to earn God's favor. But what could you possibly give him? He needs nothing. One of the primary reasons God is self-sufficient is because he's the Trinity, three in one. Within himself, he is in perfect loving relationship and perfect community that is not dependent on anything outside of himself. For all of eternity, before God created a single atom of creation, the Father perfectly loved the Son, and the Son perfectly loved the Spirit, and the Spirit has perfectly loved the Father, and so on. God didn't suddenly just become able to love when he created human beings. And that's why the Apostle John can say that God is love. That is who he is. And he can be who he is without reliance on anything else. Creation was merely an overflow of that love. Without being Trinity, God could not be self-sufficient. That's why gods of other religions cannot be both self-sufficient and, in essence, loving. Because in order for them to be loving, they're relying on things outside of themselves, objects of love outside of themselves. Do you follow me? Jen Wilkin, in her brilliant book, None Like Him, puts it all like this. Creating and sustaining all things, he himself is created and sustained by none. For all of eternity, he is perfectly provided for in and of himself, needless of any aid, unflagging in strength, never hungry or thirsty, experiencing no lack, nothing and no one outside of himself offers aid to him. And all this means that God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. This might not sound like good news at first. After all, we all like to be needed, right? 
That's surely the only reason why any human being would own a cat. It's certainly the only reason I can think of. Cats clearly loathe the human race. But because they, they need their owners for food and somewhere warm to sleep, they have to hang around your house. And occasionally they might even sit on your knee just to get what they need from you. And this makes people feel good. So they make the completely illogical decision to get a cat so they can just be perpetually needed. I think I just heard a hiss from somebody. <laughs> and I might have just lost half the room, including my daughter, if she had been listening, which she's not, because she adores cats. <laughs> But seriously, many of us do get our sense of purpose from knowing that we're needed. So that when I tell you that God doesn't need you, you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But let me show you why this is the best news that you will ever hear. Firstly, if God needed you to accomplish his purposes, imagine the pressure. You're going to let him down sooner or later, because we all do. Praise God that he never puts us under that pressure. Your faithfulness or competence or performance cannot derail his good plans or relief. Instead, he graciously invites you to partner with him because he wants you to have the privilege of being on his team. Secondly, if God needed you, he'd be limited and he would be open to manipulation. And need is a limit. We all know from our own needs that they limit us, in a sense. And they can also make us make decisions that we wouldn't otherwise make. About 10 years or so ago, I was uh, lucky enough to go to the, the theater in the West End in London. And uh, I was seeing a stage production of Lord of the Rings. And I was really excited. And we got to our seats, and I realized uh, that they were right up in the top of the balcony, right at the back, you know, the cheap seats, the sort of seats that you need binoculars to see what on earth is going on on stage. And so we were right up the top of this massive theatre. And um, now, physics and chemistry, as anyone who knows me will tell you, physics and chemistry, not my strong point, but I know enough to know that hot air rises. And there are hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people in this theatre, rows and rows of hot stage lights, and at the top of the theater with no air conditioning, it was sweltering. I, by interval, I was just drenched in sweat, gasping for some water. It, was, uh, it wasn't too pleasant. So I went looking for a drinking fountain. I didn't find one. I went to the bathroom, and uh, there was signs you know, above the sink saying, do not drink this tap water. It's bad for you, that kind of thing. And so I queued up at the bar. I queued up for ages, got to the front of the queue, and said, can I please just have some water? And uh, the barman said, yep, sure. And he disappeared off and came back with a small bottle of room temperature water. And he said, uh, that'll be five pounds, please. <laughs> this was 10 years ago. I was like, five pounds? He was like, yeah. For, for this bottle of water, one bottle of water, five pounds. He's like, yeah. There was no trace of irony at all in his face. So I was just kind of stunned, handed over my, my cash, and walked off. I didn't want to pay five pounds for this bottle of water, but I was being held hostage by my need. In this case, my need for hydration. Imagine if God needed Chris Rawson. 
that would be bad news for the whole world. Because inevitably, I would try to turn this to my own advantage and influence him or his decisions. But thankfully, God can never be held hostage to a need in that way. And that means he is entirely free to do whatever he pleases to do. And what does he choose to do? Love. And because of his freedom, he can love with a pure and selfless love that we can barely begin to wrap our heads around. He loves you because he's chosen to. And that is so much more wonderful than if he had been compelled by something to choose you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. This makes salvation all the more mind-boggling. This is why we have been singing, how marvelous is your love for me. God's decision to become human and to endure torture and agony and death on your behalf, to be crushed under the weight of your sin, that was his free choice. And he did it willingly for you. In all his glorious self-sufficiency, God has chosen not to withdraw from sinners like me and you. Instead, Ephesians 1 tells us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, that he chose you before the foundation of the world, that he adopted you into his family. Why did he give you all of this? Is it fair payment for all that you've given him? Of course not. Is it because he felt like he had to? You know, kind of, oh, all right then. No. It's because he wanted to, because he loves you. Salvation is no transaction. It's a gift, freely given. And this this gift is on offer to everyone here today. How good is God? Amen? Amen. So God is self-sufficient, and that is wonderful news. And as we've dwelled on our glorious, self-sufficient God, something else should have become clear too. You are not self-sufficient. Physically, you need air and food and water and rest and shelter, and that doesn't even begin to touch on the huge number of emotional and spiritual needs that you have. I don't know about you, but the COVID lockdowns made me realize that I was even more needy than I thought I was. Just ask Jen, my wife. She had to live with me. We all need social interaction. We all need stability and, uh, I guess, some kind of predictability in our lives. We all need to have some control over where we go and who we see. I'm endlessly needy, and so are you. It's an obvious fact, right? Yet, we struggle with this. We don't like to admit it to ourselves, let alone other people. We live in a world where a need is a flaw, and self-sufficiency can be seen as the crowning achievement. We try and spin more and more plates beyond our ability to cope. We undervalue basic needs of sleep and healthy food or exercise, thinking that it won't catch up with us. 
We opt not to put in the hard work of investing in friendships that will encourage us and challenge us. We refuse offers of help when we're clearly struggling. When somebody asks how we are, we say, fine, when we're not. We curate social media accounts that hide 90% of our real life. We desperately want to have it all together because we don't like being limited. So we find ourselves searching for self-sufficiency, wishing and often pretending that it was true of us. But do you see what we're doing when we do that? We're aspiring to be God. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because it's the same sin that led Adam and Eve to fall in the Garden of Eden. They didn't accept the limits given to them by God. So they reached out and grasped what was not theirs to grasp. Only one person is self-sufficient, and that's God. We cannot emulate him in this, because he designed you and every other human to have needs. It's not a glitch. It's not just because of sin. It's part of God's good design that you have limits. Long before the fall in the Garden of Eden, he created Adam and Eve as needy creatures, needing air and light and companionship and purpose. And look at the only perfect, sinless human being that has ever lived, Jesus himself. And although he was fully God, he was also fully human. So in his humanity, he faced need. In the Gospels, we read about him being so tired that he fell asleep on a boat in the midst of a storm. Or another time, he got hungry, like we all do, every day. He got hungry, and he had to send the disciples into town to find some food. He needed time alone with his heavenly Father, so he withdrew from the crowds time and time again. Friends died, and he experienced deep grief and needed comfort. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his darkest hour, he needed the company of his close friends. Now, Jesus never allowed his needs to lead him into sin or to lead him into being controlled like we so often do, but need was an ever-present fact of his life. And it's in Jesus that we see how we're to live as needy human beings. Jesus relied fully on his heavenly Father, the only all-sufficient one, to provide for him. Even when he faced his most daunting time of need, when he was facing the impending agony and humiliation of the cross, he said, not my will, but yours be done, and he trusted in God's plan. He trusted that the Father would vindicate him and that he would carry him through death into resurrection, which he did. Jesus didn't ever deny his needs existed, and he didn't run away from them. He didn't just snap his fingers and make them disappear. He allowed his human needs to lead him into reliance on the Father, and we are to do the same. I asked God, what is the one thing that you want, above everything else, to say to me and to say to everyone here today? And he said simply, I want you to rely on me. So I want us to hear that today, church. I want you to rely on me, says God. In Philippians 4, verse 19, Paul says, 
God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Out of his abundance and self-sufficiency, he will provide for you. He knows your need and he knows your fragility and he promises that he is sufficient for you. So what does reliance on God look like? Firstly, and most importantly, it looks like repentance. You must turn to Jesus and trust him to meet your greatest need, which is to be rescued from the sin that infects you. You cannot heal yourself. That that task is, is way beyond any of us. But praise God that he's done it for us. He took all our sin and it died with him there on the cross. He took all of our punishment. It is finished. When we admit that we cannot make ourselves right with God, then we get to turn to him and he does it for us and we can be saved. We can be brought into the eternal relationship with God that you were designed to have. Your salvation is provided as a gift, but you can only receive it when you reach the end of yourself, when you realize that you cannot fix yourself by your own efforts. Now, if you haven't received that gift, then it's on offer for you today. I'd love to chat to you about it at the end. I'll just be um, milling around at the front here. Please come and, and grab me. I'd love to chat with you and pray with you. This is your greatest need, and Jesus is offering to meet it for you today. Secondly, reliance on God will lead to a life of prayer. One of the warning signs that you are slipping into self-reliance is that you don't pray very much. Of course, if you think of yourself as capable of providing all your needs, then you're not going to take them to God, I guess. But that's exactly what he invites you to do. And that's what he instructs you to do. And you can pray confidently to God, your provider, that he will meet your needs. Keep going back to him again and again and again. Thirdly, reliance on God will lead you to thankfulness. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And when we really believe that every blessing in our lives is ours as a gift from God rather than as a product of our own hard work or cleverness then thankfulness is the only logical response, right? Fourthly, and I think this is a really big one for our culture, reliance on God will lead you to patience and perseverance in trials. If you don't expect to face issues that are too great for you alone to solve, then every time a trial comes along, you're going to feel angry, or frustrated, you might feel like this just shouldn't be happening, or you might even blame someone else. But if you know God has designed you with limits, these seasons make a lot more sense and can be navigated with hope. The great news is that God invites you to draw all your strength from his unending well of strength and to persevere in asking him for deliverance. Fifthly and finally, it will lead to investment in your church community. God's provision for your needs doesn't just get worked out between you and him alone. 
He's also designed you to need other people. And through the church, he's given you a family of spiritual parents and spiritual brothers and sisters to help you in your time of need. Rather than finding offers of help embarrassing, we must just humbly accept that help when we need it, because we will need it. And on the same note, I think we must be really eager to give help when it's required from others, because it, it, it will be required. People around you will need help. People who are reliant on God know that everything they have is from him, and it frees them to share generously with others. And when you know that you're going to need the help of others, then authentic relationships within church become indispensable. Putting up a front and pretending that everything's okay when it's not is the behavior of somebody who believes eventually they'll figure it out themselves. They'll find the answer within themselves. They don't really need to open up to others. You know, sometimes you won't have the answer inside of yourself. You'll need help. And that requires you to cultivate real relationships within church. And real relationships don't just look like being honest about your feelings and your needs. They're also about welcoming feedback and accountability. Because if you know you have limits, you'll know that you have blind spots too and that you won't get everything right. We need to be soft-hearted when trusted friends bring correction or challenge. Having needs is not necessarily a sign of failure. Many of your limits are yours by God's perfect design. It's up to you whether they drive you to despair or to dependence on him. You're designed to be dependent. The only question is what or who? will you depend on? And I want to urge you today, depend on God. Depend on God. We're going to respond now by singing and declaring our need of him. And whatever need you're facing this morning, take it to God in prayer. Share it with the people that he has placed around you. And have confidence that God will provide for your needs out of his abundant riches in Christ Jesus. Let's worship our all-sufficient God.